Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the very latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and it's time for the News Roundup. This week, President Joe Biden made it official. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. He joined the seven others who have already declared their candidacy for president so far. Also this week, the GOP-led House passed a debt ceiling bill, a symbolic and important test of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's power. We are the only party to take fiscal action in a sound mind that would lift the debt limit so we wouldn't have economic damage. We've also put us back on a path to end the Washington wasteful spending. Former Vice President Mike Pence testifies to a federal grand jury investigating Donald Trump in the January 6th insurrection, and we mourn the loss of a giant, singer, actor, and activist, Harry Belafonte. We are angry, we're we're upset, we look around for some comfort, and we don't find any. Well, we have to look to ourselves, because I think the last frontier of truth and hope in this country are the people themselves. With us on the Roundup, Wendy Benjaminson, Deputy Managing Editor at Bloomberg News. Wendy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back. And in studio, Todd Zwillick and Arthur Delaney. Todd is Deputy Bureau Chief for Vice News and host of Breaking the Vote. And Arthur is a senior reporter at HuffPost. Welcome to you both. Good to be with you. Thank you. So early on Tuesday morning, President Biden released a three-minute campaign ad titled Freedom. And it starts with a shot from the January 6th insurrection and includes issues from abortion rights protests to protecting voting rights. Arthur, what's the key message from President Biden in his re-election launch? The key message is got to beat Trump, and he released this video on the fourth anniversary of his announcement for the 2020 election in which he showed images from Charlottesville, Virginia, which was the, uh, you know, the white supremacist rally that Trump, after, after the fact, said there were fine people on both sides. It's essentially the same message uh, with an emphasis on freedom and finishing the job, since obviously he is already president uh, but he, he seems to like the matchup. Mm. Vice President Kamala Harris is featured prominently throughout the campaign ad. Wendy, how significant will her role be in Biden's re-election campaign? I, I, think, I think it's very important for uh, Kamala Harris this time, even more than the general election last time. A lot of people are wondering about Biden's age. He will be 82 when he starts his um if he were to start a second term, 86 when he finishes, just the actuarial tables make people wonder. So Kamala Harris is incredibly important to this. She is also the administration's front person on one of the key issues that Arthur just referred to there about on abortion. Um, so if this is a, an issue where 
the Democrats could really draw in independent and moderate Republicans and to have Kamala Harris out there for them is critical to the campaign. Now, the Republican National Committee responded to the campaign ad with their own video. It was a 30-second ad that paints a dystopian future with President Biden leading the country. This morning, an emboldened China invades Taiwan. Financial markets are in free fall as 500 regional banks have shuttered their doors. Border agents were overrun by a surge of 80,000 illegals yesterday evening. Officials closed the city of San Francisco this morning, citing the escalating crime and fentanyl crisis. According to the RNC, the entire ad was built entirely using AI imagery. Todd, what do you make of this strategy from the The, GOP? Yeah, the video in that ad was AI. The copy was human, so all of that political copy that you heard being invaded by illegals and Taiwan being invaded. Don't worry. It was humans who wrote that, not not a machine. Um, I guess we all expected this. You've watched AI content and deep fakes online, and this is a version of that. Um, Vice has been covering this issue this week and what it might mean for politics. Um, the RNC swears up and down that they would never produce any kind of advertisement or video with AI that was deceptive or false. So that 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 gives me faith. Um, but the technology the technology is um, going to spread. We all know this. And I th- and I think that the big issue is when it becomes cheap and available to any random person on the internet who can produce any image. Um, we'll struggle with this and we are struggling with it. We are going to get to a future. This has happened in other countries where not necessarily technology driven, but where propaganda is rampant as it's becoming more um, common in this country, where people just start to understand that they can't tell the difference between what information is real and what isn't. And then they check out who knows what's true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that messaging was um, actually embedded in a lot of MAGA propaganda early in Donald Trump's uh, rise in 2015 and 2016. And I think that AI production of ads um, sort of furthers that goal. And it's very troubling. Well, Arthur, what do you think it means for voters as we go into full election swing? How do voters tell the difference? We we talk a lot about media literacy on this program, and this just kind of ups the, ups the stakes. I, I think Todd hit on it where there's an ultimate goal uh, of people being unable to tell the difference and then tuning out. This was Donald Trump's strategy increasingly toward the end of his term where he said so much ridiculous stuff that it was simply impossible to keep up. And the split screen is notable for for the Biden campaign to use actual images of violence perpetrated by Trump supporters and then for the RNC to respond with fake images of violence because that's what they need to do to trivialize the entire concept that there's a threat to democracy or that something bad happened on January 6th. Well, meanwhile, the Biden administration is trying to secure support from progressive leadership, including Vermont Independent Senator Bernie Sanders, Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Washington State Democrat and House Progressive Chair Representative Pramila Jayapal. Wendy, how important will the progressive wing of the party be in 2024? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to keep using this word, but they are critical um, to, to Biden's reelection effort. Both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren ran against Biden in 2020, and they drew a tremendous amount of liberal Democratic support from him because Biden was campaigning as the man in the middle, the centrist, the old school Democrat. 
And they were bringing, uh, Sanders and Warren, of course, were bringing the younger, the more progressive, the more liberal Democrats to their fold. And a lot of them um, ended up voting for Biden in the primary. But when you have 70% of Americans who are saying, maybe Biden shouldn't run, but he's better than Trump, you cannot let the, the progressive Democrats stay home. You need that youth vote. You need those people. And so if Sanders and Warren, and I spoke to Sanders about this earlier this week, and he said that he is going to do everything in his power to see Joe Biden get elected, then you know, that is the kind of, he's, he's secured that end of the spectrum. Arthur, any thoughts? I, th- I think it's, the progressives are in lockstep, and you see this not just in the campaign, but also with legislative strategy on Capitol Hill. And I talked to some young rank-and-file House members this week to see if they had any concerns that Joe Biden uh, would stray from the positions he's taken that are strongly progressive. And no, nobody is questioning him, and there's there's great unity, and I think the, the White House has clearly done a good job of uh, preserving that. Democrats have also seen signs of a great deal of energy in some special elections and in the midterms. Young people and progressives actually came out really strongly. You started the show, Jen, with Joe Biden's announcement, it's all about freedom. They're sort of packaging a lot of these ideas under the big title of freedom. That's abortion. That's threats to democracy. That's uh, people intimidating trans kids and trans people, all sort of under this label of freedom. It really, really worked in a lot of midterms. It worked in Wisconsin. There was a special, there was an election for the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, which most people outside of Wisconsin didn't pay attention to. The liberal won by 10 points. It wasn't close. The White House knows this. They know how important that young and progressive energy is going to be. Well, you talked about uh, the Democrats being in lockstep, Arthur, but the Biden administration is facing a challenge from West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin to its signature climate, health, and tax legislation. Speaking on Fox News Monday, Manchin argued that $384 billion of the Inflation Reduction Act is designated for energy security, and the Biden administration needs to hold up their end of the bargain. Let me make it very clear. If this administration does not honor what it said it would do and basically continue to liberalize that, where $384 billion is what we're supposed to invest over 10 years, and they blow that out of the water and it's, it's six or seven or 800, I will do everything I can in my power to prevent that from happening. And if they don't change, then I would vote to repeal my own bill. Now, Manchin's comments come as President Biden is in a standoff with Republicans to avert a default of U.S. government debt. Arthur, why is Manchin's threat to support a repeal of the Inflation Reduction Act concerning for the Biden administration? Well, first off, there is no repeal of Manchin's own bill. That's not a thing that can really happen right now. But what he's saying illustrates his strategy to get reelected as a Democrat from West Virginia because the Republican governor of that state announced he'd be running against Manchin this week. So for a few months, or for probably a month and a half now, Manchin has been yelling at the White House and yelling at Joe Biden a lot. And he ratcheted that strategy up this week. He said, I'll repeal my own bill because I'm mad at Joe Biden. And he's also yelling at Joe Biden to negotiate with Republicans on the debt ceiling, which no other Democrat is doing. So this is his strategy of always 
setting himself apart from the party because he's in a very Republican state. Donald Trump won his state by 40 points. That's yeah. the key metric there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Quick reminder, our guests on the Roundup today are Todd Zwillick from Vice News, Arthur Delaney from HuffPost, and Bloomberg's Wendy Benjaminson. This week, Washington State implemented some of the strictest gun safety measures in the country. Democratic Governor Jay Inslee signed three bills into law that restrict the sales of certain semi-automatic rifles, impose waiting periods on firearm purchases, and allow individuals to file lawsuits against gun manufacturers or sellers in specific cases. At the bill signing, Governor Inslee said, quote, just because these laws don't solve all the problems doesn't mean the state of Washington does not take action, end quote. The new laws already face a federal court challenge. Lots more to get to this hour. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we have very important people on our show and then ask them about very unimportant things. Here's U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Uh, We are also reliably informed that among your enthusiasms, in addition to macroeconomic policy, is mobile games. Uh, There is some truth in that. There's some truth in that. Join us for the NPR podcast that considers all the other things. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Let's get back to the news roundup with this message from one of you. First-time voter Zuri wrote in, I am not a big fan of Biden, neither are any of my fellow Gen Z friends and associates. He's the oldest president in history and comes to the table with old ideas. I want someone who is fresh-minded like Marianne Williamson. What do we know, Arthur, right now about how Biden is playing with the electorate? Well, he's not super popular, and the theory of his campaign is that he can win anyway, because he, uh, you know, his popularity does not necessarily reflect the outcome, and the, they like the matchup. But he himself has has talked about his age. He said, "Even I was skeptical of this, but I took a look at the situation and thought I should." And I invite you to do so as well, which I am sure people will. And Todd, specifically with with these first time voters, Gen Zers, there are. Well, I guess we don't know because they haven't voted yet. Yeah. Um, he. We can look to the last midterm where Democrats, not Joe Biden, but Democrats in their local races and House races did very, very well on college campuses, very well amongst young voters who came out to vote uh, specifically, we're told in research and exit polling on abortion, reaction to to Republican bans on abortion, and threats to democracy and threats to their right to vote. Um, So they were enthusiastic about that. Can Joe Biden, despite the fact that he is old, despite the fact that he is not fresh and that he is totally old guard and was in politics for 40 years before they were even born, can he still motivate them to come out to vote, if not for the positive case of Joe Biden, but for prevent another term of what will maybe be Donald Trump and what that entails. So that's probably the the value proposition. He could also legalize marijuana, having started a review of the federal prohibition. Well, lots to get to over the course of the next year plus. Uh, But let's turn to some other news. This week, Chief Justice John Roberts declined an invitation to testify in a congressional hearing focused on the ethics of the Supreme Court. Roberts cited the need to, quote, preserve judicial independence. In response to the letter from Illinois Democrat Dick Durbin, he chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee. Wendy, what power does Chief Justice Roberts have to set ethical standards for justices? It would be new if he did. Um, The Supreme Court has always operated on the notion that they are literally above the ethics rules that the federal judiciary has 
has to follow. There is a set of ethics rules for up to Circuit Court of Appeals judges. Once you get to the Supreme Court, the word supreme really becomes, you know, part of part of the job. And you the assumption for the last 250 years has been that this is not needed, um, that they know what they're doing and they should be able to follow the rules. Well, you know, it's the it's the 21st century, it's the 2020s, and nobody trusts anybody. And then, of course, we've had the revelations about uh, Clarence Thomas's relationship with Harlan Crow and um, some uh, money that exchanged hands with Neil Gorsuch. And so, and there's probably you know other miss filings or things that other justices have done, but we don't know. We don't know because their disclosure laws are so vague. So the Senate Judiciary Committee is really trying to get Justice Roberts up for a discussion about uh, what to do. And Roberts' answer is, here's the rules we live by and trust us, we live by them. Is there anything they can do to compel his testimony, Todd? Uh, Congress can pass a law. Uh, and there's talk on the Hill now of trying to enforce a new ethical code. Congress has the power to pass a law enforcing a code of, a code of ethics or a procedure on the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court wouldn't be able to get in the way of that. I don't think that there's consensus in Congress for that right now. And most Republicans um, have said nothing about the latest ethical um, cloud, mostly because it's Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. Um, so they they could, and right now they're not. But John Roberts decided, you know, said, I'm not going to come testify. Separation of powers, it's exceedingly rare for a justice to do that, and that's true. He has a whole other set of concerns behind this. John Roberts has spent his entire chief justice term ever since he took over the job trying to navigate the court to a, to back to a position of esteem and respect. Um, he does it with his rulings. He does it when he chooses what side of the majority and minority to be on. And if you look at the polling of how much the public trusts the Supreme Court, it has absolutely plummeted. This hurts that. He knows it. Um, it's plummeted because uh, the public knows how Neil Gorsuch got on the court and remembers that um, Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans didn't even give Merrick Garland a hearing. Uh, the, the decision on Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade is extremely unpopular. It's popular with some people, but uh, the broad swath of, of Americans don't like that ruling and they don't like the result that's showing up in, in elections. So um, John Roberts is has decisions to make uh, about the perception of the court, how he steers it, and whether an ethical code would help return the Supreme Court to to a perception of, of, uh, of re respect on the part of the public. Well, and Arthur, I, I just wonder how... How sustainable is is this? Because it's about the justices, but it's also about Jenny Thomas, who was involved in efforts to overturn the election. When public perception of the court is so poor and they're deciding on some of the biggest issues facing this country, can John Roberts just say, uh, <laughs> not 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 interested in going there? That really was the tone of his letter to Congress this week. If you read it, he said, sure, justices may have testified before, but only on trifling matters. So how could I address you on this weighty topic? I think it's perfectly sustainable for him if members of Congress don't step up, uh, which so far they're not. Uh, Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin sent a letter. He got uh, Roberts's response, and he sent another letter. There have been uh, no serious threat to do legislation and so uh, I, I think public opinion, even though John Roberts cares about it, wouldn't uh, alter the status quo on the Supreme Court without actual political pressure. 
Well, you can listen back to our conversation about the ProPublica investigation into Clarence Thomas's financial disclosures and the ethics of the Supreme Court. Just head over to the 1A.org. Well, let's look at Congress and the GOP now. On Wednesday, the House narrowly passed the GOP's debt ceiling bill. The bill would raise the debt ceiling and cut spending by nearly 14 percent. It would also undercut major parts of President Biden's domestic agenda, including health care, climate and tax law. The final vote was down party lines with 217 Republicans for the bill and 215 Democrats voting against it. Arthur, this comes after months of negotiations. What else is in this bill? I mean, the big thing is there's a a spending cut, which you described. Uh, It raises the debt ceiling until next year, which is not as long as Democrats are going to want. And it's got work requirements, which are not a huge part of the savings. But uh, based on my interviews with lawmakers, have taken on huge symbolic importance for Republicans. All it really is, though, is a, a show of Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker, being able to unify his party, which had been a major obstacle to him getting a sit down with Joe Biden and and formally starting a a negotiation process. Because the White House, all they had to say this whole time was, well, you guys can't even agree among yourselves what you want. So why should I talk to you? Now they have produced a plan. The White House continues to say, no, we're we're not going to talk. You may have a plan now, but no. I'll talk to you about everything else. But if you start mentioning debt ceiling, we're not going to go there because breaching the debt ceiling, failing to allow the government to borrow money, to pay its expenses could be catastrophic. It's not clear how tenable this strategy will remain for the White House. uh, But right now, it's still a total standoff. Well, we got this question from John in Highland, Illinois. Can someone explain to me why Republicans would rather hurt veterans and poor people to fix budget problems than to raise taxes and have the rich help out? Tots, to break down the, the balance here in this budget, how much of it is raising is, or in this bill, rather, how much of it is about raising funds and how much of it is about cutting? I think it's all about cutting. Is there a single revenue raiser in the entire plan, Arthur? Not that I'm aware of. No. No, all about cutting. Um, I think it's important to step back a little bit from the details of the bill and whether Kevin McCarthy has gained advantage. Um, this is a hostage situation. Um, and this is a form of legislating um, that I think is very, very dangerous and kind of gets lost when we say, oh, there's a debt crisis and the sides are trying, struggling to agree. Um, The last time Republicans did this in earnest was 2011. Barack Obama was president. They had control of Congress. Um, They resolved a debt limit crisis of Republicans choosing do what we want or we won't vote to raise the debt limit, which means do what we want or there goes your economy. That's the bottom line of that. Mitch McConnell back then said that Republicans learned from that debate that the debt limit was a hostage worth taking. His words might not be a hostage worth shooting, but a hostage worth taking. So here we are in 2023. Kevin McCarthy has chosen and his uh, conservative members have demanded that they do this again. Do what we want or your economy might just go away. That's really the basis of what's going on now. Now, he did gain leverage because they did pass a bill. That's true and that's real. Joe Biden will have to negotiate on some level. But they didn't have total unity. I want to I, I want to keep in mind, four Republicans voted against that bill and they are sending a message. When McCarthy now goes and gets what he wants, Joe Biden, you better negotiate with me. You're going to agree to some spending cuts in order to raise the debt limit, in order to prevent an economic calamity. Um, He has to take whatever that deal is, and he has to pass it again in the House. There is no guarantee, and right now, no reason to believe 
that he is going to have the votes to do that. Remember, he has a five-vote majority. It took him 15 tries to become speaker with the message, McCarthy, you will do exactly as we say or you won't be speaker any longer. Four people voted against it in this iteration when the bill didn't even mean anything except to get Joe Biden to the table. None of this is ever going to become policy. It's never going to pass the Senate. And now the question is, with this potential calamity of Republicans choosing, hanging over this negotiation when McCarthy takes back the deal that Joe Biden would agree to, back to nihilist House Republicans, and there are several of them, can it even pass? I have no idea. And I'm not sure anybody else does. Well, and Wendy, just briefly remember the timeline we're bumping up against here as this negotiation moves forward. Absolutely. In fact, we are waiting today um, for a letter from Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, who will lay out, we hope, for the sake of, you know, getting this done, what when that X date is, and that X date is when the extraordinary measures is what they call it, but essentially it's moving the accounts around like we all do when we have to pay off a bill, um, moving the money around to make sure enough money is there to keep the U.S. from defaulting on its debt. We expect that letter today. Um, I do want to point out one thing on this, which is we, if, if I can do a shameless plug to Bloomberg TV, we had Kevin McCarthy in an exclusive interview yesterday, and he laid out his negotiating position. He said, I will not agree to raising taxes. I will not agree to, um, uh, to uh, a clean debt ceiling, but Joe Biden, let's talk. So he has gone a little further than the bill in saying that, he will talk to the president under those conditions. Whether the president decides to do that right now, he may wait and see what Janet Yellen has to say. Another question here from Tara in Pennsylvania who asks, if Joe Biden did not run for president, then who do our guests think would run and who would be able to get most of the Democrats behind them? Arthur? Oh, that's a fastball. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> there was the governor from California, Newsom. Gavin Newsom. Uh, there was Bernie Sanders, but this didn't this didn't become a thing. Yeah, this is a parlor game because he is running. I would say like, you know, Newsom was out there for the last six months kind of doing interviews, taking shots, kind of trying out. Remember road testing this sort of I'm sick and tired of how Republicans bully people. It's kind of like this road test sort of thing, like should Joe Biden choose not to run? So I guess you'd say Newsom, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. In Michigan mm-hmm. is making a lot of Governor waves in, in Michigan, yeah, yeah, and and runs a midwestern state, so it's not going to happen. But I guess in in Earth two point those two people. <laughs> well, well, let's move on now. Uh, while McCarthy is strategizing on ways to push forward his agenda with the debt ceiling, and our listeners are thinking about other possible presidential candidates, a Republican is setting down a strategy of her own. We should be able to agree that contraception should be more available, not less. And we can all agree that women who get abortions should not be jailed. A few have even called for the death penalty. That's the least pro-life position I can possibly imagine. That's former South Carolina governor and Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley speaking about abortion policy in Virginia on Tuesday. Arthur, how is Haley positioning herself here on this issue? Uh, She's positioning herself as a Republican candidate with no position on abortion. This was billed as a major (laughs) policy speech, and she came out and and did not make herself clear at all, except to say, except to repudiate these things that are not anywhere near the discussion in national politics. And uh, this was a speech at Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, uh, which claimed afterward that she had told them privately she'd endorsed a 15-week 
abortion ban, and she and her campaign denied that. Um, and the the only thing she would get behind is a twenty week ban, which 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 is conventional among Republicans. It's just not popular, and Republicans are caught between the general electorate and their own much smaller base that favors more abortion restrictions. And so that's the needle she's trying to thread. And that other Republican candidates are trying to thread. And it's not going well for any of them, not even Donald Trump. Well, former Arkansas governor and Republican presidential candidate Asa Hutchinson told NBC on Tuesday he doesn't think abortion is going to be an issue that hurts Republicans in 2024. On Thursday, new abortion restrictions failed to pass in Nebraska and South Carolina. These are both Republican-led legislatures. What does this say to to you all? I'd love a quick just round the table about the GOP's approach to abortion ahead of the election. Wendy, I'll come to you first. Yeah, uh, my message to Governor Hutchinson, with all respect, is dream on. Yeah. I mean, the Democrats are not going to let this go away. Republicans don't want it to be a back burner issue. And Nikki Haley, I completely agree with Arthur's take on it, but Nikki Haley is, is exactly right in that Republicans need to come up with some policy on this, but they do want a national ban. Um, some of them do. And so um, it's, it's not going away, and the Democrats aren't going to let it because it's a winning issue for abortion rights advocates. Todd? And I think what you're seeing in the those Republican legislatures who backed off, uh, they're looking around the country and seeing that this is a political loser. Uh, go back to the Supreme Court race in Wisconsin, this off-year race. Again, it was not close. It was a 10-point blowout. Um, Republicans have lost on this issue since Dobbs over and over and over again. And they realize there is no affirmative position on abortion right now that is bridging the broad electorate where you win presidential elections and their narrow base where you win primaries. There just isn't one. Quickly, Arthur, anything to add? It's just continued backlash to overturning Roe v. Wade last year. It's not going to stop. After the break, we remember an icon, Harry Belafonte. I'm Jen White, back with more in a moment. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing the biggest headlines from this week. But before we get back to the roundup, we remember an icon. Harry Belafonte passed away Tuesday in his Manhattan home. Born in Harlem to West Indian and Jamaican parents, Belafonte is credited with the popularization of calypso music in the 50s. His songs remain classics. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake it all the time. Belafonte transitioned to acting, playing notable roles alongside Dorothy Dandridge, Sidney Poitier, and others. By the late 50s, Belafonte became friends with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
This led Belafonte to pause his career and shift his focus to the civil rights movement. He helped fund organizations and fundraised for Dr. King. Belafonte continued advocating for humanitarian causes throughout his life. He served as a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador for 36 years. We recently sat down with musician Angelique Kijo. Here's what she had to say about Belafonte. Every time we sit and we talk, I just look at him. I say, I don't know many people, many artists that is willing to lose all to fight for civil rights. Harry Belafonte was 96. Hide the deadly black tarantula. I had the chance to meet Harry Belafonte when I was in my 20s. He was a keynote speaker at an event. And when I tell you, when people talk about a force of nature, this man came in to the room and when he talked to you, he looked at you and you felt like you were the center (laughs) of the universe. Kind, just warm and, oh, what what a remarkable man. Let's turn now to Florida. On Wednesday, Disney filed a lawsuit against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for leading what the company has called a retaliation campaign against it. Wendy, why is Disney suing DeSantis? Well, they have some some strong reasons to do so. I mean, in this era where companies are trying to speak to their customers and, you know, sort of speak about public policy issues. Individuals have done boycotts. I think in Florida, and I haven't done the research, but I think in Florida, this is the first time where the government has actually acted in regulating a company that has simply expressed an opinion about laws in that country, in that state, excuse me. So what happened here is that um, Disney criticized the bill that opponents call Don't Say Gay, the bill that limits um, sexual education in schools, which has now been expanded, I understand, to the 12th grade. And Disney said, yeah, not such a great idea, we don't think. That's it. And so the Florida legislature at Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis's um, urging um, took away some of their major tax breaks, um, did also a few other regulatory things that really narrowed this special taxing district that the state had given Disney in order to have the cruise port, Disney World, all the Disney stuff that we all know is in Orlando. And so Disney this week said, you know, the heck with that. They hired apparently a, a lawyer who has um, represented Donald Trump and um They're going to court. Arthur, what does this mean for Florida's governor? I think this is personal for him. Did you know he got married at Disney World (laughs) and he didn't want to? Oh, I didn't know that second part. His wife, uh, her family, big Disney enthusiasts, he has said this and he agreed to have their wedding there in 2009 so long as there were no pictures with Mickey Mouse. (laughs) So maybe this is not in the front of his mind. But that's a backstory. Been stewing on this all along. And and, you know, and other Republicans now, uh, like Nikki Haley, they're kind of like, "Jeez, DeSantis, like you're taking this a bit far." Sorry. Uh, She said, "We'd be happy to have Disney World in South Carolina 
if you really don't like it, uh, I, it's it's a, a real it's really something the feud well, between well, Disney and DeSantis. Well, Todd, what's at risk for the state of Florida and for DeSantis in this fight? Disney's the largest employer in the state, uh, so there's that. There's enormous economic consequences. I mean, Disney's not going anywhere. They're not going to South Carolina. Sorry, Governor Haley. Um, they're they're firmly ensconced in in Reedy Creek, one way or the other. At least I think so. Um, for Ron DeSantis, uh, it's a it's um, probably a personal fight he doesn't want to lose because. Um, God forbid a judge should order him to don mouse ears or something as a punishment, <laughs> according to Arthur. Um, I think DeSantis's overall program for his rise to national prominence to try to enter the Republican primary, which we're being told he made he will do in the next couple of weeks formally, um, has been really focused on. I put up wins. I use. My office, I use the governorship and the state of Florida to fight wokeism, to fight liberals, to fight the media, and to fight all of the people that you hate, if you are a member of the Republican base, the people that you want to see put down. So um, he did it with Disney um, by going after them because they protested. So I I suppose, um, you know, who can see around the corners to know what a settlement might look like or a verdict? I have no idea. Politically, um, this is this is one of the parts of uh, Ron DeSantis's um, semi-authoritarian value proposition to the Republican base. Um, It probably won't be decided before his fate in this primary is decided. So in that sense, I guess nothing. Um, But in the long term, we'll see. Well, let's turn to some more legal news. Former President Donald Trump is being tried for sexual assault and defamation against writer E. Jean Carroll. Carroll testified on Thursday and accused Trump of assaulting her in the 1990s and then defaming her after making her allegations public. Now, this is one of several lawsuits against Donald Trump, and there are very serious allegations here. How could this affect his presidential bid, Todd? I don't know, uh, because every clash with accountability that Donald Trump has had hasn't seemed to hurt him. The closest analogy to this one that I think is worth considering is what the reaction was when the Access Hollywood tape came out in 2016. Which was included in evidence in, in, the this, summer. in this tape, in this case as well. Yeah, absolutely. It, it introduced into evidence here, too. When that came out, it did hurt Donald Trump in the polls. It did drastically hurt him, which is also partly why the Stormy Daniels case is so important, not as a as a, um, a falsifying business records case, but as a as a political scandal, misleading and defrauding voters about the truth of your activities when they're about to go to the polls uh, is, is what I mean there. So when Access Hollywood came out, it did hurt Donald Trump. He did he had to do a thing that he has done as far as I'm as far as I know, once in his entire career. He apologized. Never, ever does it. He's against it. He said he's against it. Never apologize. You deny, deny, deny. You fight, fight, fight. He learned that from Roy Cohn. Um, This is in that realm. Now, we've come a long way since Access Hollywood. People know what they think about Donald Trump. They are Their views on him are solidified on either side. So um, if he were found um, civilly liable for E. Jean Carroll's rape and for defaming her, would it change what anybody thinks they already know about Donald Trump? Probably not. Uh, Again, general elections, if we get there with Donald Trump and Joe Biden, are about the broad middle, though. And the broad middle was um, especially, especially women in the suburbs, who we are told are the most important facet of this next election, um, might care a lot about it. 
how is the GOP viewing Trump as a presidential candidate right now as he faces multiple legal battles, Arthur? Well, speaking to elected Republicans, they're right behind him like they've always been. It's, uh, you know, he's racking up endorsements among members of the House and Senate, and they've got a, a, just a built-in response to everything, that it's a witch hunt, that it's prosecutorial overreach, uh, that the people who are suing him in civil court are just trying to get attention for themselves. And not only that, but Republicans propose laws to shield him from state prosecution or to defund the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. So it's it's even more uh, robust defensive Trump than it used to be, where not only do they dismiss everything bad said about him, but they actually propose changing the law to protect him. Well, let's turn now from presidential politics to state-level politics. Another Democratic state lawmaker has been ejected from their state capitol. This time it was Representative Zoe Zephyr in Montana. Last week... I spoke on the governor's amendments to Senate Bill 99, which banned gender-affirming care. This was a bill that was one of many targeting the LGBTQ community in Montana. This legislature has systematically attacked that community. We have seen bills targeting our art forms, our books, our history, and our health care. And I rose up in defense of my community that day, speaking to harms that these bills bring and that I have firsthand experience knowing about. I have had friends who have taken their lives because of these bills. I have fielded calls from families in Montana, including one family whose trans teenager attempted to take her life while watching a hearing on one of the anti-trans bills. So when I rose up and said, there is blood on your hands, I was not being hyperbolic. I was speaking to the real consequences of the votes that we as legislators take in this body. That was Montana State Representative Zoe Zephyr speaking on the House floor just before her colleagues voted to oust her for her remarks. Representative Zephyr is transgender. Wendy, what was the, why was this decision made to oust the representative from the State House? Well, first, and I hate to sound flip after that moving um, speech by by the representative, but I kind of wonder if news from Tennessee gets to Montana, because what happened in Tennessee was that these two completely unknown to the rest of us, young lawmakers, became national heroes with an audience at the White House and raising money, you know, like crazy and probably will, you know, can be in, have brilliant political careers now. This woman is, it's the same thing. She, I mean, who pays attention to the Montana state legislature until, outside of Montana, I mean, Mm -hmm. until, you know, they start doing things like this. So apparently they were, there were enough people in the Republican-led Montana legislature who were offended by her saying, there will be blood on your hands if you vote for these bans. And she argues that what she meant, she was actually referring to a, a teenager who tried to, 
uh, kill themselves um, because of these bans. And so they, I, they didn't oust her from the legislature like the Tennesseans did, but they ousted her from the House floor, which renders her pretty ineffective. She can vote. For, she was sitting outside the House in the hallway yes. working. One of those lobbying against this legislation and others targeting Montana's LGBTQ community is David Gianforte, and that's Republican Governor Greg Gianforte's non-binary son. Arthur, what has the governor said about whether or not he supports these bills? So the, the legislature actually passed them a few weeks ago. And the governor said, I support them, but, and he asked for some clarification to certain parts of the legislation. Um, he, he responded publicly to his son saying, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to you for speaking out and, and let's talk about this. And so while he, he's trying to basically have it both ways to support banning gender affirming care uh, for young people, but also uh, indicating that you're trying to indicate that he's got compassion at the same time. And the legislature is making those technical changes. And and I expect that he'll be signing that bill into law pretty soon. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics supports gender-affirming care for young people. In a statement responding to these types of legislation, they wrote, quote, gender-affirming care can reduce emotional distress, improve their sense of well-being, and reduce the risk of suicide, end quote. You know, we talked a lot about abortion and the role that will likely play in the presidential election. We're continuing to see states push for this kind of legislation. Todd, is this another issue to watch for in 2024? We started this hour, Jen, with a discussion of what is going to bring what's going to excite young people about Joe Biden. Uh, Maybe nothing will excite them about Joe Biden, but there are a lot of things that might excite them about voting and voting a certain way. Um, I think Wendy put her finger right on it that um, when the Tennessee three gained overnight national prominence uh, for being expelled for um, protest and criticism that Republicans there didn't like. Zoe Zephyr essentially expelled from the House floor um, for a criticism, by the way, um, if it's considered uh, indecorous or undecorous by by Republicans in Montana. I did a little bit of Googling. I mean, um, June of 2021, blood on your hands is precisely what Matt Gates said to Tony Fauci in a hearing in Congress about his disagreements with him over COVID. Um, Republican members of Congress who've who've depicted violence against their colleagues or been kicked off of committees um, for various forms of threatening or, or um, uh, indecorous behavior were instantly reinstated by Kevin McCarthy to the cheers of Republicans any, everywhere. So I just I just put that out there to 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 give you the the contrast between how offended these Republicans in um, Helena um, are by Zoe Zephyr's comments and and what comments elsewhere look like on a daily basis. Um, she is now a national figure. She's now famous. She's now going to help them raise money. And young people may not pay a lot of attention to debt limits and failures of banks uh, in Silicon Valley and the rest of it, but they do pay attention to this. They really do. Okay. We've got 20 seconds here. So in a sentence, and I mean it, a sentence, just tell me a story you're following in the weeks to come. Wendy? Um, It's the debt ceiling standoff. It's just too fascinating to watch. And young people should pay attention because it's important and really interesting. Arthur? (laughs) A Republican oversight of the D.C. jail. Oh, that was was a... Straight up sentence with a period. Todd, what about you? (laughs) Fannie Willis will not announce uh, any indictments in Fulton County until July. Will Jack Smith, the special counsel, beat her to it with indictments uh, maybe in the Mar-a-Lago documents case? All right. Quick clarification on the Tennessee story. Only two in Tennessee were expelled. Three were 
tried to be three were were tried to be ousted, uh, or the legislature tried to push three out, but only two were actually expelled, and they're both now. Back in. And we have to leave it there. I want to thank my guests for today, Wendy Benjaminson, Deputy Managing Editor at Bloomberg News. In studio with me, Todd Swillick and Arthur Delaney. Todd is Deputy Bureau Chief for Vice News and host of Breaking the Vote. And Arthur is a senior reporter at HuffPost. Thanks, everybody. Before we turn to the international edition of the News Roundup, we remember Jerry Springer. One of America's best-known TV show hosts, Springer passed away Thursday in Evanston, Illinois. The former Cincinnati mayor and news anchor led the Jerry Springer show for 27 seasons. The show was notorious for its taboo, often raunchy topics, and of course, its audience. But Springer described the show as a way for everyday people to share with America what their lives were like and what mattered to them. I'll say it again. Deep down, we are all the same. We all want to be happy. We cry when we're hurt. We're angry when we've been mistreated. And to be liked, accepted, and respected, not to mention loved, is the greatest gift of all. Springer's parents were World War II refugees. They left Germany in 1939 and settled in London, where Springer was born. The family later immigrated to America and settled in New York. Jerry Springer was 79 years old. And on that note, take care of yourself and each other. We'll be back with the international edition of the News Roundup after this short break. Stay with us. We've got a lot of news to cover. If you're a business owner, you know these sounds mean sales. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. Whether you're fulfilling orders from your home office or warehouse, Stamps.com helps you stress less about mailing and shipping and spend more time doing what you love most. Listening to ASMR. I mean, growing your business. But as you grow, so does the need for efficiency. Stamps.com simplifies your shipping and mailing process. Import orders from wherever you sell online. Find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times. Instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers. And buy shipping and mailing supplies when you run low. Save time and money on mailing and shipping. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. 
Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Now let's get into the international edition of the News Roundup. No water for nine days. Can you imagine that? We had to go sneak the roads to go to some place where there is a dirty water. We had to bring house and use it for cooking or drinking or whatever. Harrowing stories of evacuees from Sudan. Fighting continues to rage across the country, but a shaky truce has been extended three more days. More than 500 people have been killed in the fighting so far, but what will it take to bring an end to the conflict? We'll also discuss the latest in Ukraine and the U.S. and South Korea agree to a nuclear weapons agreement and cooperation in dealing with North Korea. Nuclear attack by North Korea against the United States or its allies or partners is unacceptable and will result in the end of whatever regime were to take such an action. Joining me today, Idris Ali. Idris is national security correspondent at Reuters. Idris, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Also with us is David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. David, hello. Hello. And here with me in studio is Anna Edgerton. She's a tech policy and national security reporter at Bloomberg News and a contributor to Bloomberg's Washington Edition newsletter. Anna, it's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with the truce. Sudan's army and the RSF, that's the Rapid Support Forces Paramilitary Group, agreed to extend the ongoing truce for another 72 hours. Idris, the ceasefire and its extension was brokered by the United States and Saudi Arabia. What impact has it had on the fighting? So this uh, truce that was initially um, brokered on Tuesday, it was supposed to expire on Thursday, has been extended and agreed upon by both sides till Sunday. And initially what we saw was a, a, a true lull in the fighting, both the sides, one led by General Burhan, who's the head of the army, and then General um, Hamdan, who's known as Hamidi, um, who's the leader of the RSF, really did... Um, get their forces to reduce um, the amount of fighting in the capital of Khartoum. What we've seen since then is basically um, still a lower level of violence than what we initially saw in the first week of the conflict. But we started seeing um, uh, gunfire, airstrikes punctuating um, throughout the capital. And so it's a situation where it's better than it was maybe a week ago, but it's gotten progressively and significantly worse as the days have gone on. We've seen a situation... um, Um, in the last 24 hours where one of the Turkish evacuation flights was fired upon. And so I think while the truce um, in in theory continues, there's a lot of concern, not just in Sudan, but but some of the brokering parties um, within Washington and Riyadh about how um, significant and how closely this truce is actually going to be followed. Well, the conflict between the two warring sides has so far left hundreds of people dead, as we said. It's closed down more than 60% of hospitals and led to the displacement of thousands of people. That's according to various UN agencies. Anna, how are both sides faring in this conflict? Has either side gained an upper hand? Yeah, one thing that we're seeing is that the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, really have more control of kind of this the urban center of Khartoum and some of the uh, 
surrounding areas. And we see that the army has really taken up their position outside. Now, two things that I'm kind of looking for. One is where you have the initial casualties of this kind of kinetic fighting of this conflict, but then you also have the people who are suffering and possibly even dying because they can't access medical care, because hospitals have been targeted, because doctors can't provide their services to the population that needs it. And then you also have people who aren't able to get just the food and the things that they need to survive day to day. The other thing that I'm watching for is the refugees that are flowing out of Sudan. You know, we had more than a million refugees from Sudan's neighbors who were there, you know, taking refuge from surrounding conflicts. So now you have not only those refugees possibly returning to their home country, countries, but also Sudanese people following them and really putting pressure on you know, the seven countries that, that ha- share a border with Sudan. Well, the World Health Organization says only 16 percent of health facilities are functioning in the capital, Khartoum. Hawada al-Hassan is a doctor treating sick and injured patients in a Khartoum state. A number of injured people are still here. Relief items are decreasing. Medical staff who worked on the first day are still here after 14 days because medical staff members cannot reach us because roads are not safe. The lull in fighting brought by the ceasefire has given tens of thousands of Sudanese time to flee to safer areas and for foreign nations to evacuate hundreds of their citizens by land and sea. David, what have those evacuation efforts by various countries looked like? They've looked very different, and this is very quickly becoming political. And so you're seeing, because some countries have many more citizens there than others, so the United States has 16,000 U.S. citizens, they think, in Sudan. And they had been warned, don't go to Sudan and have your own evacuation route planned out that doesn't involve the U.S. government. But you're now seeing a lot of uh, Sudanese uh, Americans in Sudan complaining to U.S. media that uh, the U.S. government has evacuated diplomats, but has not really made big efforts uh, for the Sudanese civilians, uh, Sudanese American civilians there. The U.K. has a lot of nationals because Sudan back in the day used to be a British colony. Uh, You're seeing some fairly angry comments from people like, for example, Uh, doctors who work in British hospitals but who still have a Sudanese passport when they went to an Air Force base where there were Royal Air Force planes waiting to take British nationals out, they were not allowed to board the planes because Britain is very strictly saying only British passport holders, whereas, say, the French uh, took out dozens of different nationalities on their flights. And the final kind of piece of domestic politics I saw today was the Chinese, uh, who have about 1,200, 1,300 Chinese in Sudan because they have some big investments there, They sent two enormous gleaming naval warships, and one of them had this enormous banner down the side that said, which means Chairman Xi, Xi Jinping, the leader here, has sent naval ships to bring everyone home. And that is all over Chinese state media today as proof that China is more successful and more benevolent than countries like America. Well, sending the naval ships is one thing. Are Chinese citizens able to get to those ships, David? So far, you're seeing uh, a reasonable, I mean, we're reliant on Chinese reporting to some extent, uh, but Chinese state media is talking about how the Chinese embassy has been getting people onto buses, uh, driving them to uh, the coasts, uh, trying to get some over the border. Because China actually is is a pretty big investor in Sudan. And this is a test of China's extreme kind of indifference about the quality of governance, the human rights of the, the, the government of Sudan, because China has been very happy to pour money into big investments there, mostly to do with getting natural resources out of Sudan. And I think 
we shouldn't just sort of treat this as just an awful war without exploring why it's happening. And just very briefly, this is, you know, all civil wars are terrible, but this is an unusually despicable conflict that is breaking out because this is between effectively the main Sudanese army and a kind of parallel army that was very cynically established by the former dictator Omar al-Bashir, who, if you remember, was indicted for genocide himself, in order to try and prevent the army from ever overthrowing him in a coup, he basically created this other parallel army, the RSF, which is the descendants of the Arab militias who caused such terrible suffering in Darfur, the Janjaweed, about a decade ago. And these two armies are now fighting for the spoils of a country which does have significant resources. And that's basically why this misery is happening all around. Well, Anna, last week on The Roundup, we talked about how humanitarian aid organizations were trying to get their people out of Khartoum, where the the fighting was focused at that point. Facing this current shortage of food, water, and medical supplies in Sudan right now, what hope is there of getting humanitarian aid in to those who can't leave? It's a very difficult situation. Like you said, it's hard to move around the country just through land routes and much more difficult to bring stuff in from outside. So one thing that we're watching is just the way that the Sudanese people are receiving this foreign help. You know, I think there's a feeling among the Sudanese that they've been in some ways abandoned by the foreign officials, the diplomats who are there trying to help guide the country to civilian rule, talking to these two generals to try to bring their their um, their forces to support civilian rule. Now that that's fallen apart, the Sudanese people feel like they've kind of been abandoned by the foreign officials who are there trying to make this work out. Idris, as we said, this fragile ceasefire was brokered by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. What talks are there currently about trying to bring an end to the fighting altogether? Yeah, it's one of those things where I think they're taking it one day at a time. The current, obviously, plan is for the ceasefire, which now stops on Sunday, to be extended further. Um, we've talked to officials at the Pentagon. They're in touch with both generals on a daily basis. But the reality is the U.S. Um, and, and maybe to a lesser extent Saudi Arabia just don't have the type of leverage um, that they once did. Obviously, they they, they give huge amounts of humanitarian aid. But when you're one of the leaders of the military, one of the warlords, um, you're not as impacted by humanitarian aid as, say, a civilian government would be. So I think the the, the current um, thinking in Washington and some of the other capitals like Cairo and Riyadh is to try and extend ceasefires as long as possible, get both the leaders um, on the talking table, talking to each other and t- trying to come up with some sort of solution that not only brings um, this this current conflict to an end, but also then turn over power to the civilian government, which was supposed to happen in April and which really led to the start of this round of, of, of the civil war. Overnight, at least 21 people were killed in Russian airstrikes on eight regions in Ukraine, including the first attack on Kyiv in 51 days. At least 19 people were killed when a Russian missile ripped through apartments in Uman, south of Kyiv. Uman's mayor says 27 apartments were completely destroyed. In eastern Ukraine, a woman and toddler were killed by another Russian missile. A Ukrainian officials say their air defense systems stopped much of the barrage from Russia. They say two attack drones were shot down plus 21 of 23 missiles. But Idris, what does this air attack tell us about Russia's arsenal of weapons compared to Ukraine's? 
Yeah, so this was really the first large-scale air attack um, against Ukrainian cities in about two months. And there had been this relative lull um, of airstrikes, um, other sort of missile barrages, um, as the Russians sort of carried out their ground um, winter offensive. That didn't make much of a difference. It was still pretty much a stalemate. And I think what the calculus we're seeing now is Russia getting ready for a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive and, and, and sort of preparing for that by carrying out um, these airstrikes. The reality is Russia has depleted much of its um, weapons in terms of missiles. Um, a lot of their what's, what are known as smart missiles or guided missiles, which can really pinpoint and hit exact locations with the help of GPS. <clears throat> and those seem to be in really short supply. And so they've started turning to other type of munitions, which are, you know, what are known as dumb bombs, which don't have the same level of accuracy. We've heard of stories of Russia using um, air defense missiles, which are really used to shoot down other missiles. Those are now being used to carry out airstrikes in um, and around Ukraine. Um, the counterpoint to that is, even with its depleted stock of munitions and missiles, just the sheer size of Russia's military means that they still have far more missiles than Ukraine um, has now and probably will ever have. And so um, even with its depleted numbers, just given the absolute size of Russia in comparison to Ukraine, this will have a lot of capability in terms of what they can fire um, at Ukraine. Well, this week, China's Xi Jinping called Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky for the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The phone call comes over a month after Xi's summit in Moscow with Vladimir Putin and after weeks of pressure from Western leaders to leverage his relationship with Putin to make peace with Ukraine. Now, David, President Zelensky wrote on Twitter that the call was, quote, long and meaningful. What do we know about what the two discussed? Well, President Zelensky is a very pragmatic and pretty impressive uh, diplomat. And he was basically being too generous, uh, more generous than China deserved. It is it is pretty disgraceful that it's taken China more than a year to make this call. But he is, uh, President Zelensky is the leader of a country that needs all the friends it can get, even if those friends are not very sincere. And that's certainly the case with China. Remember that the big picture is that China has said since the start of this war that it is neutral and that it seeks only peace as soon as possible. But that's not true. China is absolutely pro-Russia. It is a pro-Russian pseudo-neutrality that China has been pursuing for more than a year. Its officials, uh, its diplomats and its state media have been pumping out Russian talking points relentlessly throughout this war, blaming America, blaming NATO for the war, because China's core interest is to try to use this war to gain an edge, divide the West, uh, uh, sort of uh, basically discredit America and discredit NATO, because that's all in China's interest. So from the Ukrainian point of view, they don't actually want to be forced to go into peace talks before they are ready. And what, one thing that's very interesting about the timing of this call, which is the source of enormous speculation among diplomats here in Beijing, is that we had been hearing from foreign leaders who had met President Xi recently that the Chinese didn't really see any great advantage in pushing for peace talks now because they understood clearly that both the Russians and the Ukrainians are determined to have a spring offensive and to see who ends up ahead at the end of that spring offensive. So all of the European leaders in particular, like the French president, Emmanuel Macron, who had been pushing the Chinese to make that call and at least, you know, talk to Zelensky as well as meeting Putin in person. It was a bit of a surprise when this happened. And one possible explanation, we don't know for sure, is that Russia, uh, China had some ground to make up because their own ambassador to Paris gave this sort of train wreck of a television interview in France a few days before the phone call. 
where he basically not only refused to kind of answer the question, is Crimea part of Ukraine? Uh, he then basically seemed to imply that every country that used to be part of the Soviet Union, so that includes, you know, Baltic countries that are part of Europe, uh, any number of Central Asian republics, might not really be completely sovereign countries because maybe the legal status at the end of the Soviet Union was a bit ambiguous, which, of course, left China with an enormous amount of diplomatic catching up to do. And so it's possible that to some extent Xi Jinping was trying to regain a bit of initiative. But I think there's very little trust that China is sincerely uh, a neutral player that is sincerely interested in a good peace for Ukraine, because overwhelmingly this is about China's own interests and denying America a win, which means making sure that Vladimir Putin does not lose and does not pay too high a price for his war of aggression against Ukraine. Well, Ukrainian forces are regaining ground in the southern part of the country. Over the last year, Ukraine has taken back much of Kherson, including its capital city, but the region remains under Russian control. And analysts are saying that this is part of Ukraine's spring counteroffensive. What more do we know? Well, this is a very crucial moment in the conflict, like David said, and this is something that we are going to be watching over the next several months is who can gain this upper ground as we head into the spring and summer. And that's really going to determine whether or not Russia has to back down or Ukraine has to give in. So the stakes of this really could not be higher. And that's where we're going to see, you know, not just a testing of Ukraine and Russia as the principal actors in this conflict, but also of all the nations that are kind of standing behind these two sides. You know, what did the United States do with European allies? How steadfastly can we stand behind Ukraine? You know, going through this the summer and looking into the fall when Europe's going to be facing another cold winter, you know, reliant on Russian gas supplies, looking at energy prices. So this is really going to set the stage for kind of how the next 12 months of this plays out and hopefully brings us to some kind of resolution. Well, a classified report from the U.S. National Security Agency revealed plans of a Ukraine anniversary attack on Russia that was squashed by the U.S. The information was part of the leak of classified documents allegedly posted on Discord, an online message board that's usually used for gaming by a 21-year-old member of the U.S. Air National Guard. Now, the leaked documents don't say who specifically intervened to stop the attack or why Ukraine agreed. But Anna, what does this tell us about how involved U.S. intelligence is in Ukraine's war efforts? Very involved. And, and you know, I think this is one of the kind of supporting roles that the United States has been able to to play, in addition to supplying some of the material that Ukraine has been able to use, is providing that intelligence, kind of those eyes and ears, and also some military advice. Now, this is where we see the U.S. weighing in on how this conflict should play out, not just to give Ukraine the upper hand, but also to prevent it from escalating. You know, this conflict, while it's very bad, could also get worse. (laughs) And, you know, one important takeaway for, for me from the, cl- the leak of those classified documents was just how fragile the trust is that the international actors have in approaching this conflict. And it's very important that the United States allies can trust that, you know, that this country has the, the kind of the best interests at heart. And also that we're going to be good stewards of the information that we have. And with this leak, you have to have allies questioning whether or not the United States is really 
um, as responsible as it needs to be with that information. Well, let's head now to Afghanistan, where the Taliban says they've killed an Islamic State leader who was suspected of planning the 2021 suicide bombing at Kabul airport. That attack killed over 170 Afghans and 13 American service members. The U.S. launched a retaliation strike in Kabul in September 2021. That attack killed 10 civilians, including seven children, in what military officials called, quote, a tragic mistake. Now, Dries, that airport bombing occurred while U.S. troops were evacuating the country. What is this latest? this news mean for the relationship between the U.S. and the Taliban? Yeah, so what we learned um, earlier this week was that the U.S. intel community had picked up intelligence that the Taliban had been able to to kill this um, leader of this cell that was responsible for carrying out the suicide bombing um, at what was known as Abbey Gate um, at Kabul airport that killed, you know, over 200 Afghan civilians and um, 13 U.S. service members. Uh, You know, it's interesting because obviously the impact of, of killing an ISIS leader is always sort of, you know, uh, a lot of people say it's important. There's another, you know, militant taken off the battlefield. But I think there was a, a lot of um, interest in this one because of the emotional role um, th- th- that it played. This was the last attack that was carried out in Afghanistan um, when U.S. troops were there. So I think there was a lot of interest in finding this person. And there are two interesting things that stand out to me. Um, the first one is the fact that it was not the U.S. that was able to find and kill this ISIS militant. It was the Taliban. It sort of speaks to the fact that the United States doesn't really have any major capability in the country, even though the administration says, look, we can fly planes out of the Middle East and we can do intelligence operations. So it shows the fact that they need the Taliban in some way. The second thing it shows to me is the fact that um, the Taliban and Islamic State militants are truly, truly enemies. It's something we have heard about going back to 2014, but the Islamic State and their militants in Afghanistan have really been a thorn in the side of the Taliban. They've carried out suicide bombings. And so the one concern when the U.S. withdrew was, would Islamic State militants gain a foothold and then try to carry out attacks in the United States? The answer to that so far seems to be they're trying, but the Taliban truly do seem, for their own self-interest, to be interested in stopping that. And so while I don't expect this to to improve relations between the United States and Taliban in any way, it's sort of this uneasy alliance that has formed between the two when it comes to Islamic State. Afghanistan is in its third straight year of droughts and its second year in economic collapse. Those hardships are compounded by decades of war and natural disasters. The UN's Humanitarian Affairs Agency announced this week that the country needs more than $4.5 billion in humanitarian aid from the international community this year to cover the needs of 24 million people. David, how are aid agencies assisting with conditions in Afghanistan? It's very hard for aid agencies and for foreign governments that want to try to help. It was hard when Afghanistan was under American and NATO uh, uh, occupation because, you know, you had governments that would actually receive the money and send it out. And it was already hard because Afghanistan is a very poor country with a very rough terrain, uh, very poor security conditions. But the problem now is that the Taliban, who have obviously taken back control after the Americans left in 2021, they're not recognized by other countries as a legitimate government. They're basically still pariahs. And they have not kept any of their promises to try and be moderate at all. And in fact, with every passing month, they get more extreme in their bans on uh, girls attending school over sixth grade, uh, girls, uh, women working for NGOs and aid agencies, and most recently, essentially banning women from working as local staff for the United Nations, which is 
an absolutely extraordinary blow to all the UN agencies on the ground, and some of which need women because they are working with women and children, and only women and children can have access, uh, only women can help women and children have access to UN agency support in some cases. And this is the dilemma. I think sometimes it's easy for sort of maybe listeners to just think, goodness, there's so much misery out there, and it's just a kind of a world of kind of nasty things happening. But some of these nasty things are man-made. They're the result of decisions. And some of the problems that Afghanistan faces uh, are man-made, uh, are, are natural. There, are, As you say, there have been three droughts. There is climate change affecting Afghanistan. But this specific issue that it is incredibly difficult for governments, for the World Bank, for the UN to try and get aid that they would like to give to Afghan civilians to try and get that to them. It is being made almost impossible by the Taliban. And I think the proof that the Taliban are really isolated on this is that the United Nations Security Council, which almost doesn't agree on anything unanimously at the moment, did recently unanimously condemn the Taliban for their ban on women working for aid agencies. And that not just that's not just kind of a virtue signaling. If, as I say, in Afghan culture, only women can go into homes with women and children and try and deliver aid or medical assistance or food. And so if you stop women working for the UN, among all the other terrible things the Taliban have done, it's just an absolute sim- sign of the dilemma that outside agencies face, uh, because it's impossible to help even when they want to. Idris, briefly, what role, if any, does the United States say it wants to play in securing Afghanistan's economic future? Well, I think the United States does feel a, a certain level of guilt that, like David said, a lot of these are man-made or uh, natural issues, but a lot of them are man-made and a lot of them are caused by 20 years of war that was started by the United States invading the country. Um, the United States is, they say, committed to providing aid. Um, they have a lot of Afghan money that was once in the central bank that has now been confiscated by the United States. So I think the way the United States is thinking about this is how can we give aid how can we um, release some of the money that the United States has confiscated in a way that doesn't go to the Taliban, but helps the average Afghan in the country? Well, we got this question for you, David, from listener Bill in Cincinnati, who wants to know what's happening with COVID in China. We haven't heard much since they opened up. It's basically, it's rumbling around at a low level, but they have basically completely opened up and are now more or less living with COVID in the same way that uh, people are in the rest of the world although they don't have good vaccines here, which would be uh, a good idea to try and vaccinate their old. But it's kind of remarkably, dramatically over here. Well, let's move now to the South China Sea, where the U.S. and the Philippines wrap up the largest ever military exercises by the two allies. It also marked the first time in a decade that the Philippine president participated in the drill. It comes as U.S.-China tensions continue to rise and signals a stand from the Filipino government against China. Anna, what was the purpose of this huge military drill? Well, we have to understand everything that happens in this region in the context of like U.S.-China tension, which is you know, approaching levels that we haven't seen um, maybe ever. So the most interesting thing about these um, military drills is that you see Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. really sending clear signals that he's turning back to the United States as a security partner. Now, this is different than his predecessor, Rodrigo Duterte, who had kind of looked at China as, you know, a fight that he can't win, that he didn't want to engage in, you know, any kind of conflict with China. But you see the Philippine president now really throwing his lot with the United States. Now, in these 
military drills, the Philippines gave U.S. access to four new military sites. Three of those face Taiwan, and the other one faces the South China Sea. So you really see how you know the Philippines, which is less than 100 miles from Taiwan, is really looking at what could happen to China's other neighbors and wondering what the future holds for them as well. David, briefly, how has China responded? Uh, not well. Uh, they had already threatened uh, the Taiwanese, uh, sorry, the Filipinos to properly handle these issues. Uh, they'd also made some veiled threats that if Taiwan blows up, there's 150,000 Filipino uh, workers on Taiwan. But this is not helping with China's image in the Philippines, which is uh, not in good shape right now. On Thursday, the U.S. and South Korea agreed on a deal to deter a North Korean nuclear attack. The U.S. agreed to involve South Korea in its nuclear planning and to send a nuclear-armed submarine. In exchange, South Korea promised not to develop its own nuclear weapons. And this happened during South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol's visit to Washington this week. Besides the visit, Anno, why do you think this agreement happened now? Well, we had seen some um, nervousness from South Korean people that they weren't really sure that the United States would respond with nuclear weapons should South Korea be attacked. Now, we should say that this Washington Declaration, as they're calling it, is basically an admission that North Korea is a nuclear armed state. And now we're looking at kind of arms control and deterrence rather than trying to prevent North Korea from developing those weapons in the first place. So with this agreement, South Korea is brought into the nuclear planning, which is really important because now they have that kind of assurance that they know what steps the United States would take to act on that uh, mutual um, defense treaty to protect South Korea from any attacks from the North. And we mentioned that the U.S. is sending a submarine. Explain, do we know the timing of that? When would that happen? It'll be a periodic deployment. And this is the first time that this has happened in 40 years. And not just the nuclear-armed submarines, but also nuclear-capable bombers. So you see this kind of array of defense around South Korea in part to show North Korea that there would be, it's the clip you played earlier um, from President Biden, a very severe reaction to any attack from the North. And I should add, China was not pleased about these developments. You know, we had a quote from China saying that um, the U.S. was deliberately stirring up tensions, provoking confrontation, playing up threats. So again, you know, everything that happens in this region for the United States also has this element of China in the background. Yeah, David, I wanted to hear from you on that as well. How did China react to this visit? Very badly. And we saw, you know, some of the most prominent of nationalist commentators here calling President Yuna lackey, uh, accusing him of being arrogant towards the Chinese. And this follows on from attacks on President Yun of South Korea for saying things about Taiwan a few days ago that China thought were unhelpful when he said that Taiwan was a global problem, whereas for China, it's just a renegade province. It's a domestic dispute. I mean, what's unbelievably interesting is that uh, if you think back to the Trump administration, relations with South Korea were incredibly bad. President Trump thought that South Korea should have to pay, I think he wanted to double the amount of money that the South Koreans pay to offset the costs of tens of thousands of American soldiers who are permanently stationed in South Korea as a kind of tripwire against North Korean aggression. Now, both on the South Korean side, but also in the White House with the Biden administration, because China is focusing minds, there is this, you know, we see this extraordinary uh, sort of friendship. And you play that clip of American Pie because President Yoon sort of sang a snatch of of American pipe pretty well, I should say, uh, at this state dinner. And that's very smart politics because he understands 
that if the American public see a foreign leader looking like a regular guy who sings American songs and like a friendly man, they might be more willing to come to his aid. And the final thing I think, if you're if you're an American diplomat, that you would say to the Chinese is, we told you so, because for decades, as America was trying to put pressure on the Chinese to put more pressure on the North Koreans, not to develop nukes, the American argument to China was, you won't like the kind of things that we will have to do eventually to reassure South Korea if North Korea develops nuclear weapons. And here we see it. North Korea has those nuclear weapons. Uh, as Anna says, they are not going to give them up. And America is being forced to, in order to prevent South Korea from trying to develop its own nukes, is going to have to start routinely sending nuclear armed submarines and nuclear capable bombers to South Korea. And China has was warned that that would be the consequence of not putting more pressure on North Korea. Well, let's try to touch on a few more stories in the time we have left, starting with Russia and a story we've been following for a few years. Alexei Navalny is the Russian opposition leader who was poisoned in 2020, an act he and Western officials blame on the Kremlin. Now he's being held in prison by the Russian government. Navalny appeared in court this week. Idris, what did we learn from his court appearance? It's a pretty amazing and sort of tragic story that, like you said, has been going on for years and years and years now. Um, and Navalny, sort of, the, you know, the, the Russian opposition leader, um, appeared in a court um, via video link because he's already serving 11 and a half years for fraud and contempt of court. And he was basically accused of terrorism. And, and the specific charges were that a, a fund that he had set up was used and helped to fund um, an attack a couple of weeks ago that killed a Russian war blogger in Russia. Um, those are the charges. If he is found guilty, as many expect him to be found guilty because they don't believe this will be a, a fair trial, he could face up to 30 more years in prison. Um, and, and so it's just the latest um, incident in, in sort of ways the Russian government has found to try and keep Navalny behind bars. I think the context is important here. Um, the presidential, Russian presidential elections um, are going to take place in 2024. President Putin is expected to run. He's expected to win. And what we're seeing already is the Russian state, whether it's the FSB or the judiciary really cracking down on opposition figures. And, 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 and one of the ways they're doing it is by keeping Navalny in jail. So I think the expectation is as we get closer to 2024, not just Navalny, but other opposition figures, they're going to start um, seeing charges appear. Um, you know, it, it, it's pretty comical to think that Navalny could have been um, supportive in any way of this Russian blogger being killed because he was behind bars when it actually happened. So I think um, the international communities reacted with, with, with you know, sort of um, a lot of concern. They've, they've expressed it many, many times. And the reality is, and it's unfortunate that it, it doesn't seem to be having much of an impact on President Putin. Well, we're also following the story of American reporter Evan Gerskovich, who's entering week five of being in a Russian prison after being charged with spying. The Wall Street Journal and State Department deny the charges and are demanding Evan's release. He could face 20 years in prison if found. Idris, what are the back-channel conversations between the U.S. and Russia over this 31-year-old reporter? Yeah, it's one of those interesting things where the Russians usually historically had not gone after journalists when they were um, imprisoning Americans. They've imprisoned a number of Americans and then usually used them um, as a sort of uh, a way to, to barter or trade for Russians in American prisons. So this was really one of the first instances we saw of Russia going after um, 
an American journalist um, and accusing him of espionage because he was, you know, reporting on a Russian defense company, which is a part of his job and the part of many um, journalists' job in Russia, especially given that there's a war. Um, our understanding is that the, the, the Wall Street Journal, for one, is putting a lot of pressure on the State Department um, to engage with the Russians. The Russians have said this is um, in the courts now, and it will take its... its, its um, a sort of um, legal um, process. What we usually do see with Russia, and I think what a lot of back channel um, officials are hoping, is that once he is um, either convicted in some way or another, that will open the door for him then to be um, brought up by the Russians and then um, used in some sort of trade package. But I think there's a lot of concern because it's something we haven't seen in a long, long time, which is an American journalist being imprisoned in Russia for the work he's doing. And I think that has led to a, a sense of urgency, not just at the State Department with um, Anthony Blinken, but also at the White House um, in how to deal with this. Well, WNBA star Brittany Griner held her first news conference this week after being jailed in Russia last year. She said she'll never play overseas again unless it's with the U.S. Olympic team. She and her team, Phoenix Mercury, also announced a partnership with the group Bring Our Families Home. The group says 54 Americans are wrongfully detained or held hostage abroad. A decision made across the pond this week that would directly impact a big American tech company. Microsoft was set to buy video game company Activision Blizzard until this week. On Wednesday, U.K. regulators blocked the $69 billion sell. Activision Blizzard has produced popular video games like Candy Crush, Call of Duty, and World of Warcraft. Anna, why are regulators blocking Microsoft from acquiring this company? Well, this would be one of the biggest deals in history. So, you know, you already have Microsoft huge company that has faced antitrust scrutiny in the past going after this massive acquisition. And this is something that's also being examined by antitrust regulators in Europe and also here with the Federal Trade Commission. The concern is that Microsoft having Activision you know, in within the same company would prevent competitors from accessing popular games like Call of Duty, which are made by Activision. So there is, um, regulators are looking at not just what the gaming market looks like now, but also where the gaming market's going from here, especially with cloud gaming and how kind of the next generation of, of players will access these games. What's the path forward here for Microsoft? What options do they have? Well, they're going to appeal this decision from the CMA in in um, Britain, and they're also going to keep making their case to Europeans and to the the Federal Trade Commission here. Now, it's interesting to see the position that Microsoft has taken because they've really tried to position the company as an ally of governments, not just with you know, in, in this deal, but also on things like antitrust legislation here in the United States. Um, the Microsoft has said that it would allow Activision employees to unionize, kind of trying to appeal to the Biden administration. So you see kind of trying to play this good guy corporation hasn't necessarily gotten them the results that they want. So we'll definitely be following this appeal. But, um, you know, this acquisition is going to face a a difficult road from here, um, not just in in Britain. And are the UK and US working together on this block or, or are there really separate paths? Not officially, because you know they're evaluating different markets. So uh, different gaming consoles have uh, different levels of popularity, you know, here or in, in Europe. But there is kind of a, um, a agreement on the general approach of antitrust and kind of elevating um, the the role of antitrust and preserving market competition. You have Lena Khan, the chair of the Federal Trade Commission, who has 
worked with her European counterparts and and also counterparts around the world to kind of make sure that antitrust is returned to this original uh, defender of capitalism, as she would describe it, to um, make sure that everyone has a free chance to compete on a level playing field. If Microsoft is able to acquire Activision Blizzard, what would that mean for how tech companies do business in the UK? Well, this was an interesting comment that we heard from Brad Smith, the um, the vice chair of Microsoft, is that he said this decision makes UK a less hospitable place for tech companies to do business. And the UK regulators kind of reacted defensively saying, you know, just the fact that you're even making this threat that you kind of can throw the weight of Microsoft around, you know, citing Microsoft's past cooperation with authorities on issues like cybersecurity shows that this is a really powerful company. And maybe we shouldn't let Microsoft become even more powerful in another market. Well, I want to spend a little time hearing about stories each of you are following or reporting on. David, you had a column this week um, where some world leaders are calling for a de-risking of China. Explain more, please. So it's an ugly word for an interesting idea, which is that if you still think you need to engage with China because it's a very important country, it's economically vital, things like climate change, we can't do without it, but you don't really trust China, how do you manage that? And you need risk management. You need to have you know, say America wants to keep buying solar panels so that America can go green. The solar panels are coming from China. There's allegations they might include forced labor. One way to do that would be to try and send auditors into the supply chain to see if there's forced labor. That's kind of de-risking. And you can see that across a lot of governments saying, we don't want to decouple. We want to just be sure that we're not doing something that breaks our own values, like buying the products of forced labor. The problem, and this is what I said in the column, is that China has no intention of being de-risked. China thinks it's insulting. China is big enough and powerful enough now that you should just buy those solar panels and not ask rude questions about forced labor in China. You should just take China's word for it that China doesn't do that kind of thing. And they are locking up auditors. They are locking, raiding due diligence companies right now and pushing back very hard on governments uh, that want to question China in any way. And I think that shows that this middle path is saying we don't want to break up with China. We just want to kind of have risk management so we can, can carry on engaging China thinks it's big enough and strong enough now that it doesn't have to put up with that kind of uh, distrustful and suspicious language. And that's a big deal. Idris, what stories are you following in the weeks ahead? You know, one of the interesting things about Ukraine is that we've been hearing about this potential counteroffensive for months and months and months now. Um, the weather in the coming weeks ex- is expected to improve. We've heard the leader of the Wagner Group saying he expects the counteroffensive to begin around May 2nd. And we've also heard the Ukrainian defense minister saying they're pretty much ready to take it on. So what I'm really looking forward towards next week and, and, and really the coming weeks is the start of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, how it goes and what Russia's response to it it will be. And I'll give you the last word. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., is going to Brazil next week. So I'm really interested in the U.S.'s attempts to kind of bring Brazil back into the fold after President Lula was in China a few weeks ago. Well, just enough time left here to thank our guests, Anna Edgerton. She's a tech policy and national security reporter at Bloomberg News and a contributor to Bloomberg's Washington Edition newsletter. David Rennie, Beijing bureau chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. And Idris Ali, national security correspondent at Reuters. Anna, David, Idris, thanks for your time. 
Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Kellen Quigley is on the board today. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior supervising producer. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. And Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.